Everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, part three on nuclear colonialism, allyship, its frustrations and complications in moving forward with longtime anti-nuclear activists from the Dine Nation, Leona Morgan, and in the second half of the show, peacefully healing Mother Earth with Chief Orville Looking Horse. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone through air in the black of the night. You can hear, you can hear the whisper in the valley. Mm-hmm. And you know when come a cunny blows to the bar who drum, it's the warriors who are In the first part of our program today on American Indian Airwaves, we conclude our three-part interview on nuclear colonialism with longtime indigenous and activist Leona Morgan. Last week, we were speaking on Holtec International's proposal to build a high-level nuclear waste facility in the southeastern part of the state of New Mexico in opposition to many Native American nations. Our guest, Leona Morgan, is from the Diné Nation, a longtime community organizer who's been fighting nuclear colonialism since 2007. She co-founded and works with the Nuclear Issue Study Group, Diné No Nukes, which contributes to the Hall No Initiative and Radiation Monitoring Project. Our guest collaborates nationally and internationally with many groups to address the entire nuclear fuel chain in the United States and is part of an international campaign, Don't Nuke the Climate, that focuses on nuclear energy as a global climate issue. And now, part three on nuclear colonialism, allyship, its complications and frustrations, and moving forward to denuclearize Mother Earth. For me, as one person, I try to monitor the stuff that's going to affect Navajo Nation. Mm-hmm. So Holtec is in like the southeast part of New Mexico, and people might think, well, that has nothing to do with Navajo Nation. Navajo Nation's up in the northwestern part of New Mexico. But the transport is proposed to go by rail, and the railroad goes right through the Navajo Nation and passes by two of our sacred mountains. So as an indigenous person who, you know, this is my homeland and my, those are the entities and the, 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 the beings, the mountains and, and all of the stuff there, that's what our ancestors fought for. They fought to protect all of that for us. So that's kind of, you know, our responsibility today is to continue to, to look out for these entities. I know in, San, uh, in Flagstaff on the San Francisco Peaks, they had a long battle, you know, fighting the snowball. And I, it's just, you know, it breaks our heart to know they're putting the reclaimed wastewater, you know, to make this poop snow for 
recreational skiing. Again, for economic development, capitalism, um, on Mount Taylor, all these sacred places all over the world, you know, we hear about different issues, either extraction or antennas or whatever. But for us in New Mexico, we have a lot of sacred places. And I think the big issue is extraction across the board. So uranium, fracking, um, helium, that's another one is this helium stuff. And then whatever they want to do with this renewable industry, people think, oh, it's easy to fight, you know, fossil fuels. We just transition to renewables. But you can't just replace one extraction, one extractive industry for another. Because when you're talking about renewables, you know, you need different things for for energy cells. So like lithium or cobalt or you know, now they're talking about hydrogen. So, and hydrogen, how to develop that, there's so many different ways, and one of them is nuclear hydrogen. Right. And, and, you know, one of the, in the desert, we don't have a lot of water, so to make hydrogen, you know, they use water to separate the molecules and to get the hydrogen. But we need the water to drink, you know, <laughs> we need it to live. Water is life, you know. Why, why would we use energy and use water to make energy. It doesn't make any sense. So a friend of mine with the Pueblo Action Alliance, Julia Bernal, um, helped me to kind of look at hydrogen more. Um, and this, this is another thing that's coming down the line is all these new fights from the renewable extractive industries. So over in Nevada, there was just a court case on... Um, a lithium mine in a sacred place called Pimaha. Mm-hmm. The Pahimaha, Pe- 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 I guess. Uh, I, I was just there in October, and the community, um, there's there's a few different nations working together, Paiute nations and others, to protect that area. And, um, you know, while we were driving to the site, I think we passed the Tesla facility while we were driving to the site. So all these, you know, the idea of electric cars and how to be more eco-friendly. Again, people need to look at what does that mean? Is it, is it really like, is carbon neutral a reality or is it just a greenwashing lie basically to make you feel better? You spend more money, you might feel better, but there's not less impact to us. We're still going to be indigenous people around the world, you know, are the most impacted from the climate the effects, well, everyone says they're, they're the most impacted, but I think indigenous people have been feeling it for a long time and very aware of it because of their connections, you know, our connections to the <laughs> land. I'm thinking of nations like in the Amazon and other places that probably were feeling these things long, long before, you know, the what we're seeing today. Because in California, you know, we're just talking about this atmospheric river. A lot of people said, oh, I never even heard of what's an atmospheric river we're learning all these things now and we're seeing all these things now with climate change but it's to me it's just the beginning and i'm like okay how can we protect the climate if we're we're not really doing anything different we're just we're actually doing more uh like to develop hydrogen and heat and helium and nuclear um i don't know it's it's just it's it was nice 
in the early days of the pandemic, I hate to say that, it was nice seeing all those pictures. I mean, besides all the people dying, I don't want to dismiss that part. But seeing all those pictures of the environment, you know, with the blue skies in India and China, that was like a real huge, for me, it it gave me a lot of hope Mm. that that this is possible, that the environment, we, we can really make changes. But obviously that didn't last very long. We need to be still <laughs> yeah, and, and, and let some healing uh, happen, and, and, and but also change, right? Be still and, and change so healing can happen. And Pimaha, I, I know there was an action uh, downtown Reno uh, last week, you know, at the time we're doing this interview, and uh, in front of the, the courthouse. So I, my understanding, there hasn't been a decision yet on what that court case looks like but you know lithium right uh, another point uh, of struggle and you mentioned tesla you know i think of indigenous peoples in bolivia that um dealt with that struggle over the lithium mines in relationship to tesla and i know native folks want to control and and uh, in determining what lithium mining looks like um in the plurinational state of bolivia and i know we've we've covered a, a lot of ground and you've shared a lot of information for our listeners and you've done all this work and have all these lived experiences uh, over the years and you continue to be instrumental in the work that you're doing and i was wondering you know so many folks that work at the grassroots level like yourself it's easy to to get burned out and have frustrations whether um and oftentimes with you know non-native folks that claim to be allies and i was wondering if you could Share with us what what is um, your message for for folks uh, that are listening to our interview in uh, new when it comes to nuclear colonization and what would you like people to do? Uh, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, so I've done a lot of work over the years in different capacities, mostly as a volunteer activist, where I kind of. Um, decide on my own work and and that kind of thing. But I I also was trained uh, when I first started organizing. I started as a student organizer at UNM um, in the Kiva Club. And then that's I I love to talk about the Kiva Club because we we really started that up again after it went it went dormant. And so my experience from there led to um, working for an organization called the Sage Council. Um, Sage Council was working to protect a sacred site on the west side of Albuquerque. And I was working with Lori Wiaki and Sunny Wiaki. They were a brother and sister. I, I wouldn't say they were a team because there was a lot more people, but there was Lori, Sunny, and Benicia Albert, who's still doing a lot of work, and Pam and others, um, Gina. I was working for the Sage Council and they were working to protect a sacred site. And through that organization, one of my first trainings came from um, Lori Wiaki, who said, you know, there's a difference between activists and organizers. And she told me I can be an activist or I can be an organizer. And so, you know, I was like, well, what's the difference? So she told me, you know, an activist is an individual who acts, I guess, you know, I don't remember her exact words, but essentially someone who does whatever they want 
Mm. They're not really accountable to anybody. They're, they're doing, you know, following their own um, whatever, as opposed to an organizer, a community organizer. So a community organizer, because there's all kinds of organizers, but a community organizer is accountable to a community. And that's not somebody that inserts themselves into a community to do organizing. This is in, and this did happen in, in my case when I was working on the uranium site. Someone came to me and asked me for help and said, we need your help. And I was asked to join and I was specifically asked to work on this. And I had already done a lot of work before and then I, I had left and done some other stuff. But then I was asked specifically, can you come back? We need your help to do this. And then at that point, it wasn't really for my own self and my own pursuit. I mean, I mentioned my family and um, people had been affected. But yeah, so a community organizer is accountable, you know, and responsible for their actions in connection to whatever they're doing with this community. So for me, it wasn't really a community. It was more of an NGO. I had been working with INDOM, so the Eastern Navajo Dinic and Syrian Mining. They, they had a 501c3 and they had a court case and a lot of stuff going on. Um, but what they really needed was somebody to do the, the legwork to go around the community informing people. So I was driving around chapter to chapter, going to Winter Rock, which is our capital, just, just going to tons of meetings, you know, tell, talking to a lot of people and, and, and just trying to get support and spread the word. So for me, that was my own, those are my own people. I'm a Diné person. I was going home to work on this issue, a Diné issue that Diné people asked me to work on. And even as a Diné person, when I was in some communities, I was not welcomed. And some Diné people didn't like me. And I was, I was yelled at. And people were, you know, questioning me. Who are you? People thought I was white. They thought, you must be half white. You're not Navajo. You're not from here. Wow. And, and I was, you know, a lot of these things, it's just typical, I think, when you're not from a community. But the thing is, I am Diné, and so I had to prove myself, but that didn't matter because these people didn't know me. They didn't trust me. They don't know who I am. This was, I don't know, 2011. It took a long time for people to maybe learn anything about uranium, but in, in, the new, in, this, in this new fight, I was, I was bringing this new stuff because, like I said earlier, people were just concerned with what they what they needed, their RECA compensation and things like that. So here comes this new person who is Diné, but they never saw me. I didn't work in a mine. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with longtime Indigenous Diné activist Leona Morgan on nuclear colonialism, allyship, its complications and frustrations, and moving forward to denuclearize Mother Earth for the benefit of future generations. And now back to the interview. I'm not a mother, you know, I'm just some kid. But I kept going, I kept fighting, and, you know, that was because it was for my my own family, my own future, my own life. And when I move home, and it's for my people, you know, I will always do that. But imagine if it was like, oh, Sierra Club paid someone to go work in the community. So... For me, I was never paid to do this, this work um, to fight the uranium mine. I got some help, you know, people gave me gas money and stuff. But, like, it's so different when 
I'm working with non-natives who are not from the community. Mm -hmm. And when you have a fight with non-natives or anybody who's not from it, even when I'm from, I'm not from their community and I go to visit a community, I'm guilty of it too. There's, you just, you, you're, you're an outsider. You're not, you don't really have a personal stake in it. You're not going to die for it. You know, when it's your own community and your own people, you do whatever you have to. And that's what you have to do. It's not an option. But when you're not from there, you're, you're kind of there as a guest. I mean, it's almost optional. You don't have to be there. It's almost a luxury for you to be there to, to do organizing. And so for me, when I think of like non-natives coming into the res, like especially white people um, to do organizing, on Navajo Nation, um, a, lo- a long time ago, there was, I think, an executive order or something that, um, I'm not really sure what this law is, but white NGOs cannot operate on the res, you know, um, if they're not invited or, you know, so that's, that's for us. Um, but in general, when you have folks that are not from a community trying to come in and they don't understand that community, it's, it, the fight is going to come from a different place and how you operate if you don't understand the protocol and the history and then respect that protocol and act accordingly. So for us as indigenous people, we all have our traditions and our teachings, which are super, you know, highly respected and and very important. But sometimes you have non-native allies who don't understand these things and oftentimes may violate without knowing, sometimes knowingly violating, you know, traditional protocol, which is not okay. And so for me, as an indigenous person, I'm always, <laughs> I've been in a, uh, since I started this work, I, I think since 2012, uh, that's when I tell people, I started doing uranium work in 2007, but in 2012 is when I started more broadly on anti-nuclear work. So looking at the bigger nuclear fuel chain and all of my colleagues pretty much were white. I mean, there was maybe a few people of color, but not that many indigenous people, I would say one or two other indigenous people in the same circles throughout the years. And right now, in the anti-nuclear movement, I had to step back because I spent over 10 years talking to people, especially older white folks, let's say in the East Coast, you know, talking about environmental justice, and they never heard the term, you know. So then I would talk about, you know, indigenous rights, nuclear colonialism, And these things were new concepts that I was constantly having to educate white people about all of these things. Taking time away from my work to fight, to actually do fighting, uh, you know, uranium or Holtec or whatever. And and this has been the case for probably the last, maybe really strongly the last five years. I realized how much of my energy was going toward other areas that had nothing to do with fighting the fight, but educating white people on why this or that is not okay. Mm-hmm. And then losing a lot of friends. And um, yeah, so I think for me, I think I, it took a long time for me to learn that it's not our job to educate white people about white privilege and white fragility, because that is also a form of white supremacy mm-hmm. when the onus is on us to be educating them about that and then to be expected to work with them at the same time. 
So I've been treated very, <laughs> I've been treated very harshly by a lot of people because I have been. I'm very blunt when it comes to some of these issues, and um, over the years, I think that's taken its own toll on me. Mm-hmm. You were saying earlier, you know, how do we sustain ourselves? And so I had to step back from working with non-natives because of the overwhelming ignorance that is out there on how to be respectful and work properly with indigenous communities and indigenous people. So I'm really trying to focus my efforts working directly with indigenous people and not wasting my time trying to educate people because in the end I was spinning my wheels and I think what I ask folks to do when they want to support, you know, educate yourself. I, you can learn a lot from Google, but when, when, when it gets to the point where sometimes white folks will cause more harm trying to support and, and, and by their own ignorance not understanding the harm they're causing. And when that happens, I say, just give us your money. <laughs> Donate. <laughs> this is my PayPal link. I'm a volunteer because I really don't have the time to sit with you and, 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 and you know, deal with your white fragility that's your that's your thing you need to deal with. I have a lot of other I have so much to deal with. I mean, as a forty plus year old woman, I'm dealing with my own personal issues in my own life. I'm in graduate school and, you know, this new uranium site, I'm really sorry I, I can't deal with your lack of education and, and guide you or give you references. And I do to a lot of my personal friends who call me um when when they need, you know, some direction. Um, but when indigenous people ask me for help, I never say no. So that's the thing is it's, there's a lot of indigenous people who have been reaching out um, lately for different reasons. And so I definitely will spend the time um, talking on the phone, doing whatever I need uh, if I can. But in, 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 in the last few years, it's been very easy for me to say no to white folks if they need something, mm. I really, you know, if, if they're going to pay, a lot of times that's the other part of it too, is when I started this work, I was traveling across the country to do presentations, you know, like a 15 minute presentation. I'd be gone for three days and I'd be happy because I get to travel, but never paid for that, right. you know, time. And that's happened over the years where I've done so much work. And then I started to ask these people, Let's say one of the most recent occurrences, the International Coalition to Abolish Nuclear Weapons invited me to be their keynote speaker at their Paris Forum. So in February 2020, I spoke in Paris. Um, I was a keynote speaker with a Japanese uh, Hibakusha Setsuko. Um, she's amazing. I flew to Paris and I spent a week or I don't know how many days, you know, going to this conference. And I asked, well, how much are you guys paying me? And they were like, uh well, you know, we're paying for your hotel and your flight. And there's food at the conference, so everything's taken care of. But, yeah, we didn't really, you know, have money to compensate you. Um, So for me, that was one of the biggest issues. Uh, I never really paid attention to it when I started out because I thought, oh, we're all fighting the same fight and we should all work together. But over time, I started to learn about this thing called the nonprofit industrial complex and the distribution of resources among environmental groups. 
and, you know, like, let's say the Sierra Club versus, you know, an indigenous environmental group and a small group compared to a bigger group and then a group fighting fracking compared to a group fighting uranium. So the foundation world controls a lot of the different fights. So whoever's funding these pipeline fights or, you know, fracking and things like that, that's awesome. They're, they're getting a lot of support. But internationally, the anti-nuke fight does not get the same level of support. Mm. And so you have people that spend their lives fighting nuclear weapons and doing all these things, but they don't get the same, they don't have the same capacity and, and it's much harder. So even though ICANN is an anti-nuclear group, this is an anti-nuclear group that is not working on the front lines with the affected community. You know, they're in Europe, you know, dealing with the United Nations and rubbing elbows with, you know, different state officials from all over the world. Um, so they invited me to speak at their, their, their meeting, and I did. Because for me it allowed me to not just speak at this forum. And even though I wasn't getting paid, I'm in a position where I recognize tokenization. And if I am being tokenized, I will I allow it if it opens the door for other opportunities? Will I def and in general, I don't. That's why I'm an activist. I'm not a paid organizer. I don't work for anybody. But I do feel accountable to my people as an organizer, because as an indigenous person, we have protocol, you know, we have the ways we operate. So for me, I know I'm mixing up a lot of the conversation, but for, for an organizer that does work out of their pocket and, and, and does this on the side with their other job or whatever they're doing in their life, it's incredibly hard as opposed to someone who has, you know, a fully funded staff and, vacation time and, you know, new technology, even, even having, you know, access to the internet. During the pandemic, uh, there was parts of the reservation, you know, we were locked down right. and they had the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was having all these different meetings and people had, in order to, to see the slides, people had to have the internet. Mm. But in order to make a comment, you had to have a phone line. Mm. So you either had to have both or one or the other and and not comment if you you know it was it was ridiculous because some parts of the reservation they there's what you call you know those 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 um uh just internet blackouts or or uh yeah, yeah, like deserts or internet dead, deserts dead yeah dead zones yeah, the dead zones so like you know a few years ago the nuclear regulatory commission was holding public meetings all over and people in the reservation were not able to access these meetings mm -hmm. because we were on lockdown. We, we couldn't leave our house. And so people that would normally drive, you know, to the top of the hill to get cell reception, they couldn't do that. They couldn't go to the coffee shop to get on the internet. So a lot of people that didn't have access to internet and phone were not able to participate in these public meetings. Wow. And so to me, you know, that's another form. It's, it's not just part of the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, to have all the resources and, you know, in some big cities, you know, organizations will, they'll get a bus and probably bus all these people to the meeting. And then you get a bunch of people at the meeting. Like, you know, like you said, there was an action at downtown Reno, but what about on the reservation? Right. <laughs> it's, 
It's impossible. You can't be driving to all these chapters. Even when I was trying to organize on the reservation and have some meetings, some of the young people are like, I don't have a ride. And I'm like, I'll pick you up. And I'm like, oh, but I have to drive that far. And logistically, it's it's hard in a rural location. And so doing organizing when you don't have the resources and you're in a rural location with without dependable internet and communication, it's, it's a lot harder, but it's not impossible. And so these are just some of the things that folks don't understand, you know, in big cities that are doing organizing when they can just, you know, email their letters to Congress. And on the reservation, this is another thing. We can't just email our leaders. Some of our leaders don't read email. <laughs> you have to go in person. And we have a lot of young, we just had an election, so we have a lot of younger leaders now. But when I was doing organizing, I would have to have a translator most of the time because a lot of the older generation only speaks um, Dinepizad. And so for me, I'm not fluent in my own language. So that there's another language barrier there. So there's a culture, the cultural barrier, a language barrier, a generational barrier. And there's all these different things. As, as an indigenous person, it's, it's fun to go home and reconnect and you kind of I learned a lot about my culture. I got reconnected to my roots and learned a lot about everything through this fight. But I don't know, for a non-native to come into the res and do the work, it's really hard to educate folks on how to be respectful mm-hmm. and where to draw the line. Because I've seen in some movements where white folks moved to the reservation and started learning the language, which is cool, but then almost inserting themselves into the community I mean, definitely, there's, I've seen white folks come to Navajo, insert themselves into the community, dressed like a Navajo, and both, I've seen this with both a white woman and a white man, and... Um, and you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with longtime indigenous Dene activist Leona Morgan on nuclear colonialism, allyship, its complications and frustrations, and moving forward to denuclearize Mother Earth for the benefit of future generations. And now back to the interview. It has some really bad impacts on the local community and and their actions and what they're doing. And I've seen this in another community. I've you know, witness these different things and, and these white individuals are completely unaware of how hurtful their actions are, especially when you have young Native people seeing these things and they're confused, like, this doesn't make any sense. And so the best thing to do, I like, again, that's why I say, just step back, donate, <laughs> support us that way, let us do our thing. And that's the best thing you can do, because sometimes you can cause more harm by trying to insert yourself. Oh, thank you for that. And just in wrapping up, um, what does it mean for our indigenous youth and, and listeners and, and people? What, how would you define or what does being a good ancestor mean for you? Oh, yeah. That's, um, what does it mean? So I'm a student right now. I'm a graduate student getting a master's in um community and regional planning, focusing on indigenous planning. So I'm, I'm trying to learn a little bit more about indigenous planning because there is no plan that, the, that exists for nuclear waste, you know, into the future, seven generations or beyond. So I thought this, you know, to 
to have some kind of plan in place before I die, because these things are going to live longer than any of us. You know, we can say seven generations. Some of my friends in Canada say 7,000 generations. So that's a, a community in Saskatchewan. They're affected by uranium. Their community group, they say 7,000 generations. So we don't know how long into the future we're going to be in, affected by uranium and radiation. So for me, to be a good ancestor is to just try to plant the seeds that we can now. So whatever we can do in our capacity while we're here now, because we're not going to see the fruits of our labor. We're not going to see all those abandoned uranium mines cleaned up, but Mm -hmm. we can put the seeds there now to get guaranteed funding. I mean, that's my dream is, you know, before I die to see some type of guaranteed permanent funding from the United States government to clean up the mess they made. They didn't just use our language, you know, the code talkers. We have our the legacy of Navajo code talkers. They used our language in World War II. They used our uranium, you know, maybe Shinkalobwe uranium for the Manhattan Project. But all of the uranium that's been used for war, indigenous peoples are, you know, it's what, what a, I, I can't even fathom this oppression that, first of all, we got, you know, we were, our lands were taken under this lie of the doctrine of discovery. Mm. And then today we're still being oppressed by our lands and our, 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 our minerals being extracted for, you know, war against other people of color in some other part of the world. Mm. And then they want to bring the waste back to us again. So it's just, a, it's a vicious cycle. And I think through education, that's the, that's the other seed that we need to plant is, is to stop all of this. People really, I think when they just see it and understand it, it's common sense. Let's not kill each other. Let's not, you know, cause this waste that we don't know what to do with that will last forever. Let's stop making that. I mean, that's like, I don't know if that's a radical idea or just a common sense idea. So for me, being a good ancestor is planting those seeds for our children and all of the future generations to really see the destruction that we already experienced and to never repeat it again. And that was the conclusion of our three-part interview with longtime indigenous activist Leona Morgan on nuclear colonialism, allyship, its frustrations and complications in moving forward to denuclearize Mother Earth for the benefit of future generations. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. And natural beauty to last beyond oppressor's brutality. As the butterfly floats into life, we are the spirit of natural life, which is forever. The power of understanding, real connections to spirit, is meaning our resistance, our struggle, is not sacrifice lost. It is natural energy properly used. One time I was visiting with my relatives, the clouds, the mountains, the sky, the trees. My relatives touched my spirit, nudged it lovingly. Listen to us, impatient one. We are forever. You must remember the gentleness of time. 
you are struggling to be who you are. You say you want to learn the old ways. Struggling to learn when all you must do is remember. Remember the people. Remember sky and earth. Remember the people have always struggled to live in harmony, in peace. Struggle against selfishness and weakness so the people may live as nations. The old ways are hard. The people have always had to work together. Remember, impatient one. Remember and live. Do not be afraid of truth. Respect, discipline. Share your life so the people may live. Honor sky and earth. Honor yourself. Honor your relations. Remember, impatient one, the gentleness of time. Grandmother Moon, you are more than light in the night. You are more than the moon. You are spirit connection. Your energy is our life. You are memories to generations past. You are the creator of sensations that will always last. You are the knowledge, the teacher, the influence to keep the people sane. You are a healer for spirit pain. Grandmother Moon, we love you. And we are angry at the invaders who trash you and violate our universe with their mechanical uncleanliness. We pray for you, for us, and for the invader who just can't comprehend, respect, love, or the balance of life. We do not join the invading madness. From the way they act, it speaks of spirit sadness. Machine money progress is the cause of our common abuse. We see you, grandmother. We feel you. We love you. We know through your reality we will endure. We are one. We pray for you. We pray to you. Grandfathers whispering in the wind. Rejoice at the life you are a part of. Natural energy bound to natural laws. You will survive this temporary madness imposed upon you. Natural life is longer than oppressors' illusionary insanity. Spirits experience human deeds but need not end. This is just one place of changes. Spirit life is forever if you want. The universe is your home. You can survive here. Do not let them kill you. Keep your spirit strong. For distant stars and distant drums are the memories of spirit infancy. Children of Earth, let the spirit live so you can grow in your place in the universe. The Listening Honor Song by John Trudell here on American Indian Airwaves. In the final segment of today's program, Marcus Lopez, co-host and executive producer of American Indian Airwaves and myself, briefly spoke with Chief Orville Looking Horse from the Lakota Nation. He's the 19th keeper of the sacred white buffalo calf pipe, and we spoke with him regarding the upcoming spiritual law meeting taking place within the Sistan Wapitan Oyate Nation. This is Chief Orville Looking Horse on peacefully healing Mother Earth. Orville, we want to ask you the question of, on February 4th and 5th of this year, at Dakota Magic, you're going to have a Whoopi Amishie of the spiritual law meeting in your country. 
Uh, yes. Please talk about that. Okay. Well, we are the, you know, the, they call us the Great Sioux Nation, but no, we are the Lakota, Dakota, Nakota people, which means our friends. And, uh, but our people are very uh, spiritual people. And seems like uh, the way things are going is not good. We're faced with uh, a lot of uh, global disasters and chaos and sicknesses. And the, I'd like to uh, speak about that because of uh, the prophecy that we have with the white buffalo calf woman. It's a spiritual message to the world. And when she brought the pipe over 2,000 years ago, 19 generations ago, the white buffalo calf woman said, I shall return and stand upon the earth as a white buffalo calf, and many white animals shall be born par- upon the world, uh, upon the earth. And uh, and that is happening today. So 1994 is the first white buffalo, and then the white animals w- were born, and that is happening. And But in our prophecy, it says that uh, we shall be at the crossroads, either be faced with a lot of global disasters, tears from our relatives' eyes, we're going to see uh, earthquakes, volcanoes, and uh, a lot of uh, environmental uh, concerns that go, comes with that. And uh, no more uh, honorable wars, be all about money. And no, no more, uh, like, uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, false leaders and false prophets. And we're going to see uh, earth changes, climate changes. We're going to see uh, a lot of... Uh, sicknesses and virus and that is happening right now and or we can unite uh, spiritually in, in this global world so that's a prophecy of the white bosom calf woman and since that time uh, what is happening now is that uh, man has gone too far and now we got to unite spiritually uh, with uh, all nations to uh, pray about the uh, world peace global healing and we need to uh, think about the future of our children. So that's what uh, is happening. But the thing is, like, we need to uh, be very strong and uh, stand our ground and stand in prayer because of uh, what we're faced with. Uh, and we know that uh, there's a lot of, uh, like, uh, the earth is getting hotter and it's going to uh, cause a lot of, uh, like, uh, water shortage and in our territory, Dakota territory, we used to call it Wiwila. It's a Wiwila is a spring that flows year round, and and they're drying up. The dams are drying up, and uh, we're starting to face a lot of uh, sicknesses from the contamination. So the things that uh, we want to share with the people of the world that we need to unite uh, spiritually, and uh, and that's uh, we're in that time. We believe that everything is in a cycle of life that everything goes in a cycle, that we recognize everything, that Mother Earth is a spirit, and uh, Mother Earth, is uh, she has a fever, and we need to uh, bring uh, peace and harmony, balance back to the Earth. So that's our, uh, we need to unite our people, and uh, not only our people, but all people of the world. So that's what uh, we've been, our work has been doing, uh, going happening since uh, 19, 1994, the, the white buffalo calf was born. So that that's a meeting that we're having right now, and uh, to address uh, our see the other problem too is like there's a lot of uh, spiritual abuse, and uh, those laws need to be uh, respected and and addressed. So 
that we are uh, working all together uh, in a good way, our future, uh, to have everything placed. Like the elders always say, you know, if we don't do nothing, you know, you're part of the problem. So these are things that uh, we are, why we ha- are having a meeting. Well, Orville, you've been involved for many decades within your family and within the, not only within the region, but throughout the United States and the world. You stated that we have to reunite as caretakers. What do you mean by that? Well, anymore, not, uh, like a lot of people, uh, you know, they, we're always in the front, uh, forefront of uh, like uh, the Western society because we, we, we want to maintain uh, our Mother Earth and uh, like uh, our prayer is always about peace and healing. And uh, I guess uh, I, I want to uh, say that uh, you know, we are the caretakers of Mother Earth. And it's not only uh, our nation, but everybody, all nations, got to take care of the Earth because of uh, people are so caught up in uh, the work and uh, there's no more prayers, respect, and uh and you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Chief Orville Looking Horse of the Lakota Nation. He's 19th Keeper of the Sacred White Buffalo Calf Pipe. And we're speaking on peacefully healing Mother Earth and more. And now back to the interview. There's a lot of uh, like, uh, prophecies that come with our our sacred teachings. Not only our, our uh, as Indian people, but you know, other nationalities that you know the we all are faced with, uh, like Mother Earth, you can't, she can't take it no more. And that's why uh, the white animals were born. Now, you're this Whoopi Omnich. Whoopi. Whoopi Omnich Ie. Omnich Ie, yep. Nikie. That, that's um, a me- meeting. And this meeting, you talk about, you're going to talk about a lot water, land, spirituality, cultural genocide. Talk about that to our listeners. What do you mean by spiritual and cultural genocide? What I mean is like, uh, we, well, we see that it's happening, but no, it, it's internal genocide where people are not uh, following the sacred teachings. You know, they're, they're making money off of uh, our ceremonies and, uh, and people are not uh, really standing on their, what they, they're teaching or preaching about. And so that that is why, you know, we we want to address that because uh, a lot of uh, people are getting hurt instead of uh, like our ceremony is the safest place to be, and our church is supposed to be the safest place to be, place of worship. Right, and you also stated that the information about this gathering is the fact that standing rock is everywhere. The kinship practices come together at that time, reminding ourselves that. Um, this work is not over. Um, this is part of that. Was Standing Rock important to you? And if so, how so? Well, Standing Rock is uh, is uh, protecting our our water of life, mm-hmm. and uh, they call it protest, but it's uh, we're we're the protectors. That's what uh, we want to uh, say uh, because like uh, the the problem that uh, we're faced with is uh, the water shortage, and. Uh, like we've been uh, working with a lot of uh, it's not only through uh, our council or our our people talking about uh, what we're faced with on the reservations, but no, it's, it's global. We're faced with uh, like uh, we're meeting uh, with uh, people 
like uh, even at like United Nations level, talking about uh, on the World Water Day, and this year we'll be going to India. So it's not only as it are as Indian people that we look at life, uh, water is life, and uh, in our, in our traditional way, you know, which uh, like a lot of people don't respect is that you no, know, the water is uh, it's proven now today that uh, when you put two waters. Uh, two cups of water together and when you put uh prayers into that the water it's uh clear and uh it's uh healthy but when you abuse that water it's uh has a different energy in it so but that's what our our people and uh we need to get back to that uh praying with the food um, praying with the everything that we have and appreciate you know this life and through prayer so that's what uh we want to really address and have all people uh, stand with us in prayer. Orville, you, you're talking about um, protecting Mother Earth, and, and she's sick, and and our, the way we live is unhealthy and destructive and in harming her, and you're talking about uh, water relations and protecting water relations, and you mentioned the white buffalo and the um, Tutanka Oyate, the Buffalo Nation peoples, and and I was wondering when we talk about uh, spiritual and cultural genocide, like what you're going to do at the conference, um, what about other relations, other two-legged, four-legged animal uh, relations, and how does that relate to this, um, this responsibility to stop uh, spiritual and cultural genocide? Well, in our ways, uh, we follow spirit, and in a way, it's a way of life. Even though 1978, the Freedom of Religion Act, they gave us uh, like, uh, it's called Freedom of Religion Act, uh, where we can uh, now do uh, ceremonies out in the open, and that we never had before because our we we were being faced with genocide and still happening. Well, right now, the and the like, uh, when we uh, talk about a way of life, you no, know, we recognize everything that no. Uh, uh, we pray for the two-legged, the four-legged, the winged ones. And I always tell people that, you no, know, you pray for people that have done you wrong. So this is what uh, we're, we need to uh, always stay in uh, peace and, and nonviolence. I speak about that mm. highly. Yes, Arvo, once you talk about sovereignty, we know that the Montana anti-indigenous politics, you know, um, is, not, is not disappearing. Ever since the 1970s, the Sagebrush Rebellion and the senators, even recently from uh, Montana, Keith Regler and Kelly Spell, Republican Kelly Spell, created a, a draft resolution about challenging and dismantling and investigate alternatives to reservation system. Is that the kind of thing that, that we want to combat attitude towards tribal nations? Today and do you see that as a additional challenge to Native people and our uh, cultural concerns? Is is that what you is challenging those people and talk about sovereignty? Why don't you talk about that for a second for our listeners? Well, yeah, some of our people are they they talk about sovereignty because of uh, the recent uh, writings on the newspaper, you know, from Montana, but. The thing is, like, uh, well, we uh, 
uh, or we we pray about is like Mother Earth. Uh, uh, no, we have to take care of Mother Earth to us uh, in our spiritual ways. That no, uh, that we came here and we take care of Mother Earth, and uh, we follow Spirit, and uh, we go back uh, make that sacred journey. But the thing is, like uh, in our time here, in our time here, we need to uh, uh, address uh, you know better uh, relations with uh, with each other. You no. Know, and uh, I think uh, what I, I want to say is that we do have a, a, a peace treaty with the U.S., and uh, they need to respect that, too. Like, uh, the treaties are the sacred, uh, supreme law of the land. You know? Yes, you're so right, Oro, about the treaties. I'm glad you mentioned them because you probably talk about that. And I know Standing Rock, some of the circles talking about the implementation and the honoring of those treaties, which you said, a supreme law of the land, and this conference is a, is real important. And thank you for giving us some time to talk with you. But what's the message for our young people today? Why don't you uh, express what your concerns are and your message to young people? Well, I, I want to really uh, refer that to uh, like our some of our teachings. Like the the heart is a uh, like uh, the tree of life, and uh, every child being born, they're born with the tree of life, and uh, the Great Spirit gave us a, a gift. But and when we grew up, it's learned behavior. And what we say is that, uh, and that we believe that Changleska Waka, the sacred hoop, that there's no one person higher than the other. But we, uh, uh, that's including that uh, young people too, and they're all part of this uh, cycle of life. That in our Teachings like uh like uh in Standing Rock, I told him that no uh, that uh, from the everything that uh we do upon Mother Earth is you know, the Great Spirit. You no, know, we live under the Great Spirit like many other nations. But in our teachings, that you look down on the Earth and uh, and there's a tree of life there. In our teachings, that we so highly uh, respect the tree of life, that sacred tree of life, because uh Mother Earth, uh, all the rivers and creeks and streams, uh, you no. Know, all the branches that goes into uh, the tree trunk of the Mississippi River. And that's a tree of life from the satellite view. And then you looked at the heart of everything that is, that, where we come from, the Satsapa, the Black Hills of South Dakota. And you look down from the satellite view, you look at the earth, uh, the Black Hills, uh, and you put a red fluorescent light on it, and it looks like an open heart. And within that, you look at it, and all the rivers, creeks, and streams, uh, no, it looks like a tree of life. So when a child is born, no, they, they're born as a tree of life in their heart. And th- that's about life. And that's from the satellite view to look upon, upon the earth. And that, that that's the rivers and creeks. That's the, the water of life. So we need to uh, protect that for uh, the future generations. And, and we want young, young people to understand that you know, everything is, is a living spirit. Thank you so much. That's an important message for our young people and for everybody around. Now, after this, this conference you're talking about is coming up, 4th and 5th, what do you want to get out of it? Or well, what, do you, what do you, you have, a, there's a lot of, of things and a lot of ideas and a lot of spiritual happenings that's going along. What do you want to get out of this to, to our audience? If you want to share that, many of them can go, many of them can't go. Um, what's your goal for right now? Uh, if anything you want to share with us, I, I'd like to uh, share that the water is uh, like uh, 
what it is like. And now we're looking forward to uh, like uh, the March, uh, like the World Water Day, and uh, a day of uh, like the June 21st in our ceremonies. That's uh, the welcoming the thunder ceremony. And uh, we we want to uh, pray for uh, blessings of the uh, good water. And uh, and then uh, we want to. Uh, I really uh, I we, I stand on peace and on nonviolence. I spoke with uh, many dignitaries about that, but we're faced with uh, uh, could be like a war too. You know, that could happen, and with a touch of a button, and we're living a very dangerous life. So we need to all people to uh, pray for peace and uh, no more wars. The moment of silence is over. And that was Chief Orville Looking Horse of the Lakota Nation speaking on peacefully healing Mother Earth. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Leona Morgan, and Chief Orville Looking Horse. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, John Trudell, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. The moment of silence is over. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains is over.